I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today on The Truth of the Matter, we have a very special guest and a very special episode. We have with us, in addition to my colleague, Dan Rundy, the head of our Prosperity and Development Program, who's also a senior vice president at CSIS, we have with us Ambassador William Taylor, who is vice president of Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And of course, Ambassador Taylor, in addition to being a West Point grad, served in the military, is also the former United States ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. He then also served as charge d'affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev in 2019. Ambassador Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. So the thing we want to understand you know, from this podcast, we want to talk about the CSIS Ukraine Economic Reconstruction Commission that you've graciously agreed to serve as part of. And Dan, I'm going to ask Dan about that in a second. But what we really want to know is why is Ukraine so important? Why is it so important to the United States? And, and what drew you as a State Department official to want to be involved with Ukraine in the first place? Ukraine is important for the United States for several reasons. One is security. Uh, it's in our interest that Ukraine remain an independent sovereign nation with the ability to chart its own course, to be able to decide its own future. And the challenge from Russia, the, the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, puts that at risk. Now, why is that important to the United States? It's important to the United States because Ukraine is right on the border with NATO. We're a strong member of NATO, and NATO matters to us, and the NATO members matter to us. So if Russia were to take over Ukraine, Russia would then be in the position to threaten our allies, our alliance, and us. They'd be on our very doorstep. They'd be on our very doorstep. And as we see, that can spill over. The Russians can... You know, they probably won't stop at Ukraine. If they were able to take over Ukraine, they probably would not stop. Our allies in the Baltic states, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, would be very vulnerable. Poland would be vulnerable right there on the border. So from a U.S. national security standpoint, we want Ukraine to win this war. We want them to be able to defeat the Russians so that they can continue to be a sovereign state, probably a state that joins NATO and state that joins the European Union, which would make both NATO and the European Union stronger, which is also in our interest. There's another reason, though, Andrew. Let me just mention this. Americans are offended, are horrified by what's going on in, in Ukraine, where the Russians have invaded. We see the atrocities. We see the war crimes. We see the, the murders, the tortures, the rapes. We see the abduction, the kidnapping. They're, they're kidnapping children, Ukrainian children, and taking them into Russia in the thousands. This is a war crime. People say this is genocide. And the American people are offended by this, are angered by this. We want to see justice done around the world, and justice is not being done in Ukraine. So Ukraine needs to win this war as well. That's another reason. There's a moral imperative. Andrew, I just so agree with Ambassador Taylor. We were so lucky when Ambassador Taylor agreed to be part of our commission. But I want to just echo what, what Ambassador Taylor is saying. I think we have a sense of 
good guys and a sense of bad guys. And the Ukrainians are clearly the good guys. We also, I think, have a sense of fair play. And this has just been dirty. After World War II, we all agreed we weren't going to invade people's countries and, and rewrite, redraw maps by invading countries. That was something you did in the Second World You know, People tried to do that in the Second World War. And we all agreed afterwards that we weren't going to do that anymore. So in addition to all the things that Ambassador Taylor is saying, there's a sense that if we're going to allow this and that the Russians to do this in Ukraine, what does that mean in the rest of the world? Does that mean somebody like China can decide, well, they're going to do something in Taiwan? There's a number of other very complicated, intense border disputes in a variety of other countries, not as famous, not as well known as in other parts of the world. But you know, are we gonna? Is this gonna be the new set of rules that people can just sort of willy nilly invade countries and re redraw the maps? It's crazy. So there's a sense that this is morally wrong. I think I agree with the ambassador, but I also think there's a sense of we know who the good guys are here, and we know who the bad guys are, and we also know that this is just wrong. This is just wrong, and we we've all agreed to to settle our differences diplomatically. We have we set up the United Nations not so we could try and avoid these sorts of things. That's what the United Nations are there for, and to have have an ability to come up with different ways of solving our, our differences. Well, you know, as the ambassador just said, the brutality of Russia knows no bounds. Knows no bounds. Right now, we see that no bounds. Here we are in November. It just snowed in Kiev. Yeah, winter is here. Ago. It's not winter coming. Is it's here. Winter is here. And the Russians are losing on the battlefield. Their army cannot stand up against the Ukrainian army. So what are they doing? The Russians are bombing electricity, heating, water. So normal civilian Ukrainians in their homes, in their offices, as winter is here, can't get heat, it's can't get suffering. electricity. They are suffering, and it's going to get worse. January and February in Kiev, I've been there. It's cold. It is cold. And so this is just, it's cynical, it's cruel, it's inhumane, it's barbaric, it's criminal. I mean, Dan's exactly right. You know, I've been in morally ambiguous wars. This is not morally ambiguous. This is clear. This is clear. There's an aggressor and there's a victim. You know, I was, I was sitting at the Baltimore Ravens game yesterday and it was 33 degrees out. And I kept thinking about the Ukrainian people. For me, it was no problem because we have club level tickets and we could go inside and get some hot chocolate. You can't do that if 10 million people are without power and without water and it's frigid. You just can't. And, and it's not 33 degrees. It's, it's minus 10 degrees. Right. It's minus it's 10 degrees. Really and cold. so like even, you know, we're are, we live for the most part in luxury here in America. They're under siege and this is just a, a, a disaster. And if they're looking, you're exactly right to think about it in personal human terms right now. I mean, we can walk into our homes or our offices and we'll be warm. We'll be comfortable. If there is no place in the community, in the city, in the region where there is heat or electricity or light, then that's hopeless. And that they're looking at months in that way. This is, this is terrible. This is terrible. So, Dan, I want to ask you because... You did stand up the CSIS Ukraine Economic Reconstruction Commission. Tell me what the commission's stated purpose is and, and why is this important for us as an organization? Well, thanks. I um, 
have had an interest in Ukraine for a number of years. I'm on the board of an enterprise fund that was set up in the Clinton administration to invest in Ukraine and Moldova. So I have a I, I was fairly conversant in Ukraine. I'm not an expert in Ukraine, but I was pretty good at a cocktail party on Ukraine and Moldova. And so when Dr. Hamry came to me and said, we need to do this and I need you to do this, I, of course, saluted. But I also thought it was a great idea and it was his idea. And he gave me some some basic guidance. But the first thing I said when I when I was given sort of these these orders was to say, we're not going to do a needs assessment. That's like a technical term for sort of looking at the a rack and stack of all the specific needs of housing or food or roads or sort of power and the deficits. There are lots of organizations that can do that. The World Bank or the IMF or other institutions can do that. What we set out to do was to try and bring together Republicans and Democrats, a large number of people with a private sector background, a lot of diverse perspectives. We wanted to bring in some Ukrainians, some Europeans, Canadians, Japanese to look at what were the, we wanted to create a framework for thinking about Ukraine's reconstruction with a private sector lens, because there's not going to be enough foreign aid to rebuild Ukraine. And ultimately what we want is one of the things that came about, we've done 20 working group meetings in the last six months. We've done three commission meetings. We released an interim report with your help, Andrew. And we have in early January, we have our, our major report is coming out, but I, we're gonna be continuing this work over the next, at least the next six months and probably longer than that. But what we wanted to do was put forward specific steps that the American government could take, steps that the Ukrainian government could take, thinking about how to bring in the private sector. So what we wanted to do was think about what, what were the steps we needed to, to enable and support the reconstruction and modernization of Ukraine, in, especially in the context, this was as we went along in the process, after 100 you know, meetings and interviews and, and 20 working groups and We've done eight papers so far. We've got another four or five in the, coming in the pipeline and this report. I would say to you, my deepest thought is that we need to align all of our reconstruction efforts in the direction of European Union accession for Ukraine, that everything ought to be aligned to that. And there ought to be a, a reasonable timeline for and this that. This is separate from them joining NATO. This is separate from them joining NATO. So separate from them joining NATO. Now, I'm in favor of them joining NATO, NATO over time. And actually, we've talked about this in the commission meetings, is that historically, countries have joined NATO first and then have joined the EU. But in this case, it's likely that they may join the EU first and then later join NATO. But the, the pull of gravity, the, the, the joining the European Union is such an attractive thing that countries are willing to do hard and difficult things to join. It's like joining a really popular fraternity or sorority. And so there's been some criticism in Washington about burden sharing, about the Europeans, they're not doing enough. My ask, this is Dan speaking, but I suspect the commission, I think will agree with this, is to set a specific timeline within a reasonable period. If we talk about 20 years, that's, that's too theoretical. Now, in an ideal world, it'd be more like 10, maybe a little less, but I'd, I could accept 10. But we need a specific timeline with milestones, and we should align all of our aid, all of our conditions about what we're going to ask them to do 
in alignment with that goal. But the Europeans, in addition to coughing up more money, which there's been a complaint in Washington about, needs to cough up a specific timeline. They've they've started the process saying, we're interested in you becoming a member. That's not what they call it. They have some other fancy term for it. But what we need now is a real timeline. So that would be one of the things we've taken away from this process is that that's the that would be the most important thing we could think about. Okay, so Ambassador Taylor, given all of what Dan just said, are we in a frozen conflict right now between Ukraine and Russia? And if so, does it make it harder to join the EU, join NATO? Andrew, I don't think we're in a frozen conflict. It's clearly a hot conflict. It is going, you know, there are thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers on both sides that have been killed. And it goes on today. So it's clearly a hot roaring, horrible conflict right now. And right now, Ukrainians are winning. As I mentioned earlier, the Ukrainians are winning on the battlefield. They're winning the big battles. They're winning, they won the big battle of Kiev, the capital. They won the big battle of Kharkiv. They're, they won the battle of Kherson uh, more recently. And they are pushing the Russians out. So that's not a frozen conflict, clearly. If that can continue, if current trends continue, that is, if the Ukrainians continue to do well, it's current trend, and if the Russians continue to do poorly, current trend, then the Ukrainians could indeed push the Russians out of most of Ukraine. I say most because Crimea is difficult. But nonetheless, if the Russians are out of Ukraine, then there could be conversations. There could be some discussions. The Ukrainians may sit down with the Russians at that point, with the Russians out of their country and have a conversation about how to move forward. Uh, so, and that's not a frozen conflict. Now, I will admit that that's not the only scenario. There's another scenario, which is the closer to the frozen conflict that, that you mentioned. That is, both sides get tired. Both sides are tired. Let's be clear. The Russians are having a very hard time. Putin's having a very hard time getting soldiers. Getting soldiers. I mean, he's He's going, he's asked the North Koreans, he's asked the Belarusians, he's Not asked to the mention Iran ammunition. And ammunition. But he's having a hard time getting soldiers. He's gone to Russian prisons to pull prisoners out to send to the front line. Not he, exactly the disciplined soldiers you want on the front line. Not the disciplined trained soldiers that you need on the front line. Drunks and convicts. And the Ukrainians, by contrast, turn away volunteers every day. That's incredible. It is incredible. They've got, they have as many as they can train and get to the front line as, as they need and more. So if that, though, leads to exhaustion, I don't, again, there's reasons to think that they won't on the Ukrainian side. The Ukrainians make it. But if, if it comes, if the winter gets really bad, um, and if, if we flag, if the United States and, and Europeans flag on our support, for Ukraine, they're going to have a real hard time. In which case, um, if the Russians are able to somehow find troops uh, in their draft, which they're having a hard time with, if they can find enough people to draft and put into the army, you could have a stalemate. And that could be not a frozen conflict because I don't think the Ukrainians will ever give up. They will continue to fight. Even if, if our support flags and, and declines for some terrible reason, which I think won't happen. But if that should happen, Ukrainians will continue to fight. So all to say, long answer to your question, Andrew, about frozen conflict. I don't see a frozen conflict. I see if, if it's not a decisive win by the Ukrainians that I just said, you know, where they push the Russians out of their country, then it will be a simmering conflict. Because the Ukraine, we've seen how 
the, the Ukrainians put pressure on the occupying forces. We've seen how they kill collaborators. You don't, want to be, you don't want to be a small-town mayor collaborator in Russian control. You category. end up dead. In yeah, that, in it's, that it's a, you have a short lifespan. You have a short lifespan. So all to say that, there, that it won't be frozen. It will be simmering. The Ukrainians will continue to fight whether or not they've got the support. I'm sure, let's be clear, I'm sure we will continue to support the Americans and the Europeans. So far, it's been overwhelming in our Congress, overwhelming bipartisan support, and I think that will continue. And I think that means the Ukrainians will continue. Is there the will, though, there now to bring them into NATO, or is that still, you know, a process? It's a process. It's definitely a process. As we all know, you got to have every member of NATO agree to, to admit a new member, which means you need Hungary. You need Turkey. Uh, in the past, when we tried, when the United States strongly supported, and still do, support Ukraine joining NATO. And when we tried, in, back in 2008, I was in Kiev at the time. There was at the Bucharest NATO at Summit. At the Bucharest Summit. 2008. In 2008. Dan's exactly right. And President Bush, George W. Bush, came to Kiev first, and then he went on to Bucharest uh, in order to tell his NATO leader colleagues that he was just in Kiev, and he talked to the Ukrainians, he talked to the president, he talked to the ministers, he talked to people, talked to the military, and they want in. They want to be a member of NATO. And the Germans and the French said no. The Germans and the French said no. So, so it is a process. It's a long process. In the context of a war, it's going to be very difficult for all 30 members of NATO to say yes to admitting uh, a nation at war. So it's not going to happen soon. It's not going to happen soon. But my bet is after the war, the Ukrainians, by the way, don't say after the war. They say after the victory. After the victory, the Ukrainians in the, in the victorious scenario will be seen to be a very strong army worthy of being in NATO. In fact, is the NATO nations would be lucky. We'd lucky. be lucky to have yeah, maybe the most worthy, yeah. most worthy. the they most battle tested. They, the yeah. they will have defeated the Russians. That's what NATO's there for. So, yeah. So I think that will happen after the victory. One of the things I've been so fascinated by, and Andrew, actually, if I can ask you this question, but I just think has been the communications power of President Zelensky. I mean, he's it's off the charts. It's extraordinary. You know, as a communications professional, I look at Zelensky's leadership in this as just being nothing short of extraordinary. From the optics, you know, I mean, this is a guy who used to walk around in suits, but you'll never see him in a suit right now. You see him in his classic green fatigues, his T-shirt. He's clearly has the biceps to pull it off. Yeah, he's where he's got the biceps to pull it off. You know, sun's out, guns out. He he really, <laughs> um, you know, our colleague Elliot Cohen was just over there and visited with him, and you know, Elliot said he, he was absolutely blown away by his presence. You see his communications blitz on the world stage, where he goes and speaks to everyone he possibly can speak to who will listen and who will receive him. And there's been a huge audience for that. Um, it's really leadership 101 when it comes to communication. And I, I would put it to you, Ambassador Taylor, do you think the Ukrainians could be as successful as they are right now without the communication strategy and the leadership that President Zelensky has shown? You know, I think they could, Andrew. I think they could. I think Z Zelensky is, is one with the Ukrainian people. The relationship goes both ways. He 
takes power from them. He takes inspiration from them. They are inspired by his courage, his leadership, as you've said, his communication skills. Uh, he talks to them every night. Yeah. He talks to them every night and he encourages them. He's, he doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't talk through rose-colored glasses. He sees the problems. They know he's with them. He's, he sees what they're going through he and he's empathetic to it. He is. When yeah. I, I mentioned that, he, that uh, the Ukrainian just pushed the Russians out of Kherson. Two days later, he was in Kherson. He was there. He was there. I mean, he goes, same thing in Kharkiv. We remember that when they pushed them out of, out of Kiev, the Russians were very close to downtown Kiev. So I, I was in Kiev in September. And the first thing I did when I got there was get on a bus and drive out to Bucha, the source of this horrible atrocity. And it's about a 20-minute drive. And that's how close the Russians were to downtown. And while, they, while, the, while the Russian military was there, the forces were there 20 minutes away, the hit squads, the special forces, were in the city looking for Zelensky. They were looking to kill Zelensky. And at that time, several people went to President Zelensky and said, you know, Mr. President, we need you to live. We need you to, to be able to lead our people. So we'll help you get down to another part of the country, down in the Carpathian Mountains in the southwest, where it's safer. And he famously said, I need ammunition, not a ride. And that goes exactly what you said, Andrew. I mean, that is, uh, that's inspired. It's courageous. And the people love him for it. Yeah, he's there with them in every every step of the way. He wouldn't leave. He right. wouldn't leave Kiev. Right. I mean, he, he said, he said, what would what would the soldiers who are defending Kiev and defending Ukraine say if they saw their president leave the capital? Yeah, and there might be nobody else in the world who has as much of a target on their back as President Zelensky at this time. Our colleague again, Elliot Cohen, when he was over there, he said he he, you know, he's been around US presidents, he's been around world leaders. He's never seen security like he saw around President Zelensky, which gave me a lot of comfort, actually. It, it is astounding. But what is also astounding is, I mean, he's in, in the bowels of a very secure presidential office. However, he doesn't stay there. No, he's out on the streets. He's out on the streets. He's, he's taking selfies out on the street. Yeah. Uh, he's walking around the streets of Kiev. Then he goes to Kharkiv. Then he goes to Kherson. And yeah, I'm sure he's got a lot of security, but that's dangerous. That Extremely is dangerous. dangerous. Well, going forward, you know, a lot of people have said Ukraine is, is, is even before this war, a difficult place to do business. There's corruption. There's economic problems. Part of what your commission, the CSIS commission, is attempting to do is help to reconstruct Ukraine and help make it a place where the West can really do business. Can you guys speak to that and what those efforts are going to look like and what a successful reconstruction might look like for Ukraine? Let me let me take a stab at the, what a success looks like first, because then I think it gets to this issue of corruption. I want to talk about corruption, too, because I think it's we've done we've done a series of of meeting specifically on that. And I think, and I know Ambassador Taylor's gonna have views on this. I think it, what's the, what does success look like for Ukraine is 10 years from now, Ukraine is a full-fledged member of the European Union, is on its way to having the GNP per capita of Poland, has the manufacturing strength of a Germany, because they have, they have the capacity to do that, the agricultural potential of a Canada, 
the IT sector of Estonia and the military capacity of Israel. So no that's an extraordinary combination. That's what that, and that's that's all feasible. That their economy is hands manufacturing. Well, we haven't even talked about the mineral resources. No, we haven't talked about mineral, and we haven't talked about the renewable energy resources. They've got they've got the potential for wind. They're you know very. This is a very highly educated society. It's a very sophisticated society. Hands is manufacturing. Brains is ICT and grains. That's the that's the economy. Hands, brains, and grains. So. At the same time, though, it hasn't had the same success economically as, say, Poland. And so one of the reasons for that is probably is often cited two reasons. One is, well, Poland wasn't a part of the Soviet Union and didn't have several hundred years of repression by the Russians. And all the shenanigans that go on with that. And all the shenanigans that go on with that. But also that the Ukrainians didn't have the option of joining the European Union. So those, those are the, the reasonings. It's true. Those are true statements. But there's a sense that if they were on a path to the European Union, that they could track and follow the path of a Poland. And Poland has an economy same size as Ukraine, but has an economy that's four times as rich, basically. So one of the issues is cited is this issue of governance or corruption. And there's several narratives about corruption. One narrative is the Vladimir Putin narrative. It's a very offensive narrative, Andrew. It's, it's a, the narrative goes something like this. Ukraine is a hopelessly corrupt place that's not, not governable. And so therefore, and I'll leave the rest, there, but that's in essence what the argument is. It's an offensive, it's a dirty line. There is, however, a second narrative which is not helpful. And the second narrative is, and sometimes you'll hear this, that some people, when we talk about governance issues and corruption issues, will say, I don't want to talk about corruption issues because you are playing into Russian disinformation. So I've heard several serious, serious people say that it's, that is not helpful. I understand why you feel that way, because it's sort of triggering something deeper. And, the, and I think the issue of corruption, perhaps, and they'll say, the conversation about corruption has been shaped by Russian disinformation. And I think that actually there's a grain of truth in that. Because if you look at the Transparency International Index in terms of the rankings of, of perceptions of corruption, I, we, I said, let's go look. Where, where does Ukraine sort of fall in the range of other countries when we look at like levels of corruption? Panama, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Indonesia. Now, all those countries are developing and some are very, really successful countries and Ukraine has all the potential to be a really successful country. But those countries are not defined. Their country brand isn't corruption. But unfortunately, partially because unfortunately because of Russian disinformation, part of the country brand of Ukraine is this issue of corruption. We need to disentangle the conversation about country brand have a real conversation about corruption. There's a woman on the commission named Eka Takeshvili. I'm going to mispronounce her last name. It's a Georgian last name. She's really impressive. She's the former foreign minister of Georgia, and she's been working specifically on anti-corruption and governance issues in Ukraine for the last five years. And so she says, Stan, we shouldn't define Ukraine by its corruption. As you know, I mean, we've got corruption problems in the United States. You sure know, we're, we do. We're, an, we're an imperfect, we're a flawed vessel. So the issue of corruption is a real issue. 
we need, there's a number of things we ought to be looking at, whether it's sort of monopolistic tendencies in the economy, whether it's sort of a weak judiciary, how hard it is to start a business, what sorts of levels of, of transparency there are and freedom in the media. These are all things that need to be looked at. But I know Ambassador Taylor will have views on it. What, what do you think about what I just said? So Dan, I agree. Let me elaborate on a couple of things you said. Um, and the first thing is the perception point. You were exactly right. The Transparency International measures the perception of corruption. And it turns out that one of the reasons that, that Ukraine is perceived to be corrupt is that they've got an open media environment. Yeah. That is journalists. And that's improved over time. It's improved over time dramatically. Journalists can track down and expose corruption in Ukraine that they can't do in Russia. I mean, the journalists can't do that. In a lot of these places that Dan just mentioned, you can't do that. The, the press in Ukraine is aggressive. And it turns out that institutions that the Ukrainians have put in, put in place are helping the, the press figure it out and track down the... So the Ukrainian government, the previous government under Poroshenko, not under, under Zelensky, but the, put in place a very rigorous disclosure law. Government officials in Ukraine have to disclose more than any other government official in the world. Wow. In the world. I didn't know that. Absolutely. Your watch, your car... Your wife's flat in London, all of that has to be listed in great detail. And not only is it listed in great detail, it's made public. So journalists can go to that list, that, that website, and they can, say, they can say, oh, you know, I know the, uh, the city councilman of uh, Kiev, and I can see on this website that he's got all of these flats and he has several cars. And I know what his salary is, the journalists say. How did this happen? So they go and they track it down. And that, you know, if that leads to a perception of corruption, maybe so. But they are, they are fighting it. That's, that's, that's number one. Second thing is, one of the big problems that Ukraine had were corrupt oligarchs. Russians have that too. But the Ukrainians had a big problem with corrupt oligarchs. And there have been several studies over the past couple of months that shows how the oligarchs in Ukraine have taken a beating from this war. They, not only have they lost their holdings and their assets, in particular in Donbass, but also their influence is way down. Their influence is way down. Why? Because the Ukrainian people are so united now against the Russians, but in favor of a strong clean, respectable Ukraine. They're so united on that. My son's not going to go fight and die for oligarchs. Exactly. Exactly. And there, I've talked to several people, a bunch of people that I, I go and in touch with Ukrainians, and they tell me they wish they had done more on corruption before this war started because they see the importance. So there is going to be a, a change. There is already a change in Ukrainian attitudes and Ukrainian people. One last thing, which is the new commitment to fighting corruption. When I was there, by the way, the last time, uh, President Zelensky had just been inaugurated. I met with him a bunch of times. One of the, one of the times I, I had several senators with me, and we went to the opening of the high anti-corruption court. 
It was a special new court that was focused only on these big corrupt cases. I had two senators with me. U.S. senators. U.S. senators. And uh, President Zelensky walked in. He looked over and saw me and saw the, I uh, introduced the two senators. He went up there and he made a very strong statement. He said, we are not here to fight corruption. We are here to defeat corruption, he said. He was very strong on this thing. So I think you're going to see a new commitment. Just the one other thing, Andrew, is there was a major commitment. Ambassador Taylor is aware of this after 2014 to say, we're going to double down on trying to confront corruption. They didn't complete this. But one of the things I think is fair to say is sort of like when you lift up a rock and you find lots of ants underneath, the ants were probably already there, but now you could see the ants. There's been an additional effort in Ukrainian society to confront and take on corruption in just in, say, the last eight years. And so there's been sort of a heightened awareness of it. It was already sort of there, but there's been sort of a willingness to confront it even before the war. But I think I agree with Ambassador Taylor that the war itself has been a sobering experience for society. I just think this issue of my son's not going to fight and die just, you know, so that the oligarchs can go back to business as usual. So part of what needs to happen here is along with President Zelensky's great communication skills, the Ukrainian government has to be able to communicate to the people that we're not about corruption anymore. Just like we've defeated this or are defeating this enemy, we're defeating corruption in our society. Andrew, that's 100% right. And I think there's sort of be a grand bargain. They're like, we will help you become a member of the European Union. We're going to arm you and support you with economic assistance and military assistance. But then there's a, there's a counterpart on the other side, on the Ukraine side, saying you've got to do a number of steps. And whether it's on certain kinds of economic reforms or certain kinds of steps you've got to take as part of this European Union accession, using the European Union accession as the pathway to say you're going to do these things on corruption, you're going to do these things on in the agricultural sector, you're going to do these things on the sorts of infrastructure that you're going to have, or these are the sorts of things you're going to have in the internet or digital, these sorts of things. So, so going back to what I said at the beginning, that we should use European Union accession as the North Star, the pull of gravity to cut a grand bargain with Ukraine on some of these issues that you're raising. So given all this, how can the private sector play into Ukraine's reconstruction and why is it important to attract private sector investment? I'll go back to what I said earlier. There's not enough foreign aid. There's not going to be enough foreign aid. There's not going to be enough loans to rebuild Ukraine. Right, that we're, we're already committing need. billions and billions, we're, we're tens of billions of dollars to the war effort. And, and, and that money is going to pay for cops and, and, and doctors and teachers. We want people to stay at their, not only do we want people on the front lines, but we want people at their battle stations on the home front so that we have a regular sense of a functioning society, that we're investing in a functioning society. That's what the money's for. And keep the lights on. The, the fo Some of the real heroes of this war have been the people in the electricity sector keeping the lights on after the bad sure. guys will bomb it. You know, within a few hours, they put that back. That doesn't, you know, that's those are public sector workers putting their lives on the line to, to restore power. And so when we give that money, it's to pay the salaries of those people so that they show up on the job every day and keeping the system going every day. That's what that's for. But you're ultimately... If we think about the agriculture sector or we think about the tech, the tech sector is booming. I'm on this board I told you about. One of the things that sh has been an education for me is how amazing the tech sector is. There are 
tens of thousands of young people, hundreds of thousands of well-educated young people who want to start, who are doing startups, working in the digital economy. And the, the internet, the in cyberspace, the war is real, but the cyber economy has been functioning. So what we need is, so for example, the enterprise fund on whose board I set made a decision to put money into a private equity fund. And President Zelensky announced that this private equity fund was betting on the future of Ukraine. And he did this on national television about a month ago. We put money into this fund and, and it crowded in other money. So what we want is to create a sense that Ukraine is an ongoing enterprise, but also that it's got an enormous potential and enormous future as, par as a member of the European Union and firmly embedded in the Euro-Atlantic community. That it, it's gonna be someday as rich as Poland, and that it's got, we could think about Ukraine as a nearshoring partner. We think about, you know, Mexico as a nearshoring partner. We should be thinking about Ukraine as a potential nearshoring partner. We should be thinking about Ukraine ultimately in terms of it's not meeting its full agricultural potential. It's sort of like at 50% of what it could be doing agriculturally. So there's, there's opportunity there. There's opportunity in the digital sector. It's got a Silicon Valley-like feel. There is there could easily be a much bigger sector. They've got an enormous creative economy. You've seen these video shorts these people do. I mean, this is a very creative society. This is a, a country with enormous potential. So that ultimately, what we need is for folks to come home. But for folks to come home, they need to have a school. They need to have a hospital. They need to feel secure. They need to be a place to sleep at night. And then they need a job. Do you all see American businesses wanting to invest in this? I mean, after all, American businesses want to do the right thing, but they also care very much about the bottom line. And this is, you know, not yet a, a bulletproof investment. No, I, it's, you're right, Andrew. I think we've purposely put a number of American business voices on the commission to talk about what they would need. And so Michael Polsky, one of our co-chairs, who's Ukrainian Americans lived the American dream, left Ukraine in the in the late 1970s and has been a serial entrepreneur. He he runs the largest builder of renewable energy infrastructure in the world. He's a very successful guy. He's one of the world's experts in renewable energy. And he, you know, he's of the belief that, you know, Ukraine's got a lot of potential. It's got to, it's got to confront some issues, including these governance challenges. Google is there. So we have someone from Google. MasterCard is there. There's a significant middle class. So they've they've got views. We also have leaders from Cargill and Mosaic. Now, Mosaic is one of the world's largest fertilizer companies. Now, it's one of the large companies I'd never heard of. It's really impressive comp company. It's been very generous to us and very helpful to us. James Prokopanko is the former global CEO of Mosaic. He happens to be Ukrainian American. And so he was really helpful in getting Greg Page, the former global CEO of Cargill, who's one of his buddies, to be the to be the co-chair. And, so and, we, and we have our former USTR, Mike Froman. Oh, my gosh. On this, on this one of the smartest people, one of the smartest people in Washington and just a good guy. Mm -hmm. It's just we have Ambassador Paul Dobriansky as a co-chair. Mm -hmm. We have Stephanie von Friedeberg, who is the former number two at the IFC. We have Alexander Stubb, who's the former prime minister of Finland and is really impressive as a former number two of the European Investment Bank. So if anybody can get this moving forward, yeah, it's this commission. It's this commission. And so we're going to be doing a business conference in Chicago in the spring. We're going to be pulling that together. So watch the space specifically to get at these issues. 
ambassadors, when you were ambassador, you talked to American businesses all the time. Talk to them all the time. And they see the potential, Dan, that you just described. They absolutely see that. And that's that really said, encouraging. It's very encouraging. It's very encouraging. That said, what you said is also true, Andrew. That is, this country needs to rebuild the infrastructure. It needs to rebuild the energy transmission. It needs to rebuild the water treatment plants, all of which have been destroyed. It needs to rebuild the schools and hospitals that have been destroyed. The Russians are bombing schools and hospitals. It's unbelievable. It's disgusting. It's horrifying. And all that needs to be rebuilt. Now, that's, that's where we're going to need funds from governments. One of the things that the commission has done, which I think is very innovative and very smart, is to identify where the, where the money for that kind of investment is going to come from. That is rebuilding the infrastructure of the country, which could be $750 billion. $750 billion. And it turns out that there's $300 billion, half of that, fully half of that, of Russian money that is in Western banks. Talk about frozen assets. Those are frozen. Those are frozen and they are seized, exactly right, by G7 banks in Germany, in the United States, in Britain, in France, in Japan. $300 billion worth goes a long way to that rebuilding that's going to be necessary in order to welcome in the private sector investment. Private sector investors, you know, they want to invest in grain, in agriculture, they in, want to in manufacturing, in manufacturing. It's harder to get them to invest in rebuilding hospitals or rebuilding roads. Though there are companies that can do pieces of that work. Some of them have started coming to approach us. I'm sure Ambassador Taylor's met folks like this too. So there are, there are American companies that can do this. There are Ukrainian companies that can do this. So one of the things we've done as part of the commission is to be plugged into a variety of, of European events and activities that are relevant to the commission. So we have the former Vice Minister of Commerce of the Czech Republic, uh, Martina Talbarova, on the commission because they've had the EU presidency for the last six months. And so they had a conference. And one of the things that was very surprising to us was the enormous interest of Central and Eastern European businesses in investing in Ukraine. It's just next door. They know, they know the region. They're comfortable. And so Poland, the same thing. Romania, the same thing. So I think... Ukraine's reconstruction isn't just about Ukraine. It's going to impact the neighboring countries as well in a very significant and a very positive way. Having a country of 40 million people with a significant middle class, well-educated as its neighbor at peace and, you know, having the ability to defend itself, you know, and, and having a and on its way to becoming an EU member. This this is a country I was at a G7 experts meeting convened by by the European Union and the G7 maybe three weeks ago. And the leadership of the European Union said, you're investing in a future EU member state. Now, I'd like them to create a real timeline and real milestones. And that, in my view, is part of their burden sharing is to cough that up, in addition to coughing up the money. that Because I think there's been a sense here in Washington, they've been fairly generous, but they could accelerate some of it and they could do a little bit more. That's how they framed it as, Ukraine is going to be a future EU member state, and you're investing in a future EU member state. It's good. Ambassador Taylor, I want to give you the benediction here. Where do you see, as we've discussed, we're now in winter. Where do you see these next couple months for Ukrainians, and how are they going to do, both on the battlefield and just in their homes and in their schools and just living? 
Andrew, I was talking to several Ukrainians just over the weekend, and I was asking them that question. They are going to continue to fight. They're going to continue to support their military as they fight. You know, there's this talk of maybe during the winter it'll be a pause, military pause. No, that's not what the Ukrainians have in mind. The Russians may hope for a pause because they need one. They're battered. And, and as we talked about earlier, they're, they're hurting for soldiers. And they need time to train these soldiers that they're trying to scrape, scrape up. The Ukrainians are going to push real hard during this winter. And they're going to bond together to get through the cold weather. They've already started doing this. The Ukrainians are known, are famous for their civil society, their ability to organize themselves, not with the government, not with the government telling them how to do this. No, they organize themselves. This has been the source of such strength on the, on the revolutionary side, on the, on the Maidan, on the revolution of dignity. This was not a government. This was Ukrainians getting together, organizing themselves. That's what they'll do this winter. They'll get through this. It's going to be tough. We should support them. We need to support them. We need to support them with all the humanitarian funds uh, and equipment and supplies that Dan was talking about earlier, with the financing for their soldiers, as well as their hospital workers, as well as their police. We need to fund that, and we need to keep them going. And if we do, they will win. They will win this battle. Well, I know, you know, this week is Thanksgiving in the United States, and we're all going to be celebrating, you know, our favorite holiday, giving thanks. And I think we're going to be setting aside some special thoughts for the Ukrainian people as we celebrate our holiday. I want to thank you very much, Ambassador Taylor, for these incredible insights. And you, Dan, as always, um, happy Thanksgiving to both of you. And, and, and we'll be talking about this again on The Truth of the Matter. Of that, you can be sure. Very good. Thanks, thank you, Andrew. Andrew. Good to be here. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 